Good morning, everybody. I want to talk to you this morning about a couple of guys whose lives we can read about in Scripture. It's going to be David and Peter. And these guys had everything that we've been talking about so far in our series in terms of what God said he's going to give us in order to change us. If you're a believer, here's the promise, that there's going to be an old life and a new life, and you're going to be able to tell the difference. And not just you, everybody else is going to be able to tell the difference too. And God's going to give us that. So what will do that? What's going to take us from old to new? The gospel. So these two guys, they have the gospel. We can go ahead and put our list up. They have the gospel. They know that they are God's possession because God decided that they would be. The, God decided that he was going to put away their sin. You know, that's the only way we ever get to be God's possession, is that he decides he's going to put away our sin. And he's going to put away their sin by two things, by grace through faith. That's how he puts it away. And those two things are a gift, grace and faith. So the whole thing is God, and they know it. We're going to get to a verse a little later on today. It's Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Whose salvation is it? He did it. God saves. And so they know that. They have the gospel. They have the Holy Spirit. They have all that God is, the person of God with them all the time, to act and will according to his good purpose in their life. And with these guys, we can actually read about the exact moment that they received God. In the, He filled them up. So they have that. And these two guys, they have stored up the word in their heart so that they would not sin against God. As a matter of fact, one of them wrote that. One of them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually wrote that, I have stored it up that I might not sin against you. They stored up the word. They valued the word. They treasured it probably more than anybody in here. And it was easy for the Holy Spirit to guide them because all he had to do was, what does the Holy Spirit do? He calls to their remembrance something that God has already said. That's how God talks to us. And they knew the word, so all he had to do is bring up something he said, and they knew instantly this is what God wants me to do. And so it produced good things. These they were holy men, especially when we talk about holy in terms of set apart. They were set apart for God. They served God with all their heart, with all their soul, mind, and strength. They lived their faith. Do you know how, do you know how sometimes we can have our life and have faith, but the two never intersect? So you can have your life, and then you say, oh yeah, I believe in God, but you can let the two be separate. And then you can, you can intersect them on Sunday morning for an hour, and then, <laughs> and then you can bring them right back out here. Well, that was not the case with them. To be God's possession, it was, their faith was their life. So it was good. But with all of that, everything 
they still, in seasons of their life, fully knowing what God wanted them to do. God, how does God light up the path in which we should go? His word. And they knew exactly what God wanted them to do. They knew exactly what was right and good and true and all that stuff. But there were seasons where they just said, today, I'm going over here. And so they had to repent. They had to stop. They had to hate what they were doing. They had to turn around, go back, and go right again. So that means we have to make it part of our conversation. We're never going to be, listen, we have everything we need for life and godliness. All of that. But like them, there are going to be, it's, God lights it up for us. We know exactly where, but there's going to be seasons where we just go, today, I'm just going to go my own way. And we will never be all that God has called us to be over here. And so the need for repentance is going to be a part of us becoming all of that. So today's about repentance. Not exactly a super duper Mother's Day message. Usually on Mother's Day, we spend a lot of time telling you how awesome you are. And you are awesome. So enjoy your mocha or whatever. But today is not going to be tons of fun. All right? Because even moms have to repent. Thus saith the Lord. Here we go. So a couple of guys, just their lives. First one is David. Old Testament, David. Youngest of eight brothers. A good-looking guy. Spent a lot of time with sheep. Played the harp. Good with a slingshot. Some of us in here hide and treat. He was, he was good enough to, to kill a bear with a slingshot. Some of us in here hide in trees and shoot helpless deer with big guns. <laughs> he would stand on the ground and chase bears with rocks. So a pretty tough guy. He, he was an Israelite, and when he was young, his country decided that they wanted a king. And God said, I'm your king from heaven. And they said, no, we want a king who sits in a chair, wears a hat like everybody else. The prophet Samuel was upset about that. God told Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So he gave them a king. His name was Saul. Saul was, it didn't work out. And it primarily didn't work out because he just wouldn't listen. God would give him very specific things to do, and then he would just modify them a little bit. He did most of it, not all of it. Here's what's interesting about Saul. He was more worried about what people thought than what God said. And God rejected him. Keep that out of your life. Never be more worried about what people might think than what God has said. Always let what God has said trump what people think. Because it, it won't go good the other way. So Saul gets set aside and David is the new 
choice. My favorite verse from the day that he was selected as the new choice is 1 Samuel 16. It said, so Samuel comes and he anoints David and it said, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. So all the good things that you can think about as you, that you associate with David, always assign, always give credit where credit is due. Because all the good things that David was able to do, it was God in him enabling him to do it. When God wants something done on the planet that's in line with his heart, he actually comes down here and does it through us because without him, there isn't anything in us that would ever be able to do it. So all the good stuff that David did was God in David. So killing giants, driving away armies. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. There's a long story there, but I'm just going to tell you that's a good thing. And all along the way, he offered up prayers of thanksgiving, of gratitude. One of my favorites, you don't have it, I'm just going to read it to you, is this comes from 2 Samuel. And this is all along the way, as David is now you know, ruling, he says things like this. Who am I, O God, that you have brought me this far? And yet it was a little thing for you to do. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all about all of this greatness for me, but you alone are great. I love that. He knows it's not him. He knows that the whole thing is supposed to, to, to bring God glory. I think one of the, maybe one of the, the greatest marks of holiness in David's life is the fact that he never killed Saul. Saul was still around. He was replaced, but he didn't die. And he wasn't terribly happy about being replaced. And so he, tried to, he spent a large portion of his life trying to kill David. But God would always engineer it the other way around where David would have the opportunity to kill Saul. I did, this, I did a, a look at David's life. And what I wanted to see was all the ups and the downs. So I just read through his life. This would be a great exercise for you to do. Read through, and you can chart it. There was good times and bad times and ups. We're all going to have them. But I also knew with all the ups and downs that David is someone who wrote the Psalms. And I wanted to see, can you tell what he was writing and when? So what was he writing in the Psalms whenever things were down? What was he writing? I, I wanted to get a feel for that. And it turns out I wasn't the first one to think of that. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot people figured out about that. Here's what they figured out. And it's actually helped me to read the Psalms because I wasn't a crazy Psalm guy, but now I kind of am. I like them. They say Psalms 40 through 70 are probably written when David was on the run from Saul. And if you read them, you can, you can see it. It actually brings the word alive to you a little bit because you know what's going on. And he'll say in there, where are you, God? I'm like, I'm running from this man. He's crazy. Do something. Why have you forgotten me? So there's a lot of anger or angst towards God in the Psalms. If you've ever felt that way, read them. It's okay to say those things. But then he'll switch and waffle like, I'm sorry, you're right. You are my rock. You are my refuge. I'm going to hang on. I'm going to wait for you to do this. I'll just be patient. But then he'll flip and say, please kill him. One of them, he says, don't kill him, but make him suffer and make it slow. So he'll be writing that in a cave somewhere and then, presumably, and then who walks into the cave? 
Saul. And his men, David's men, are like, kill him. They literally say, pin him to the ground with a spear so we can go home. And you know he wants to because he just confessed it in the Psalms. But David is not alone. There is what we naturally want to do, but then who else is with us? The fullness and person of God who always will prefer whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever, right? We're not alone. And so he would say, I cannot kill the Lord's anointed. He's holy. But in the spring of the year, when kings go off to war, that's how the chapter starts. In the spring of the year, when kings go off to war, David stayed home. He just took his foot off the gas. I don't know. Don't take your foot off the gas. Our culture will tell us there will be a day when you can rest. You can just chill and relax and just coast. Don't do that. Work really hard until you die and rest then. Because a guy that's bored is dangerous. In the spring of the year, when kings go off to war, David stayed home. And this lady named Bathsheba was bathing on her roof, which wasn't a big deal, except David's roof was higher. That was a problem. So we know where it's going. Here's my question. On that day, did he cease to have the Holy Spirit? Did that stop? No. It didn't stop, because what was our verse? And the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. Was the fullness of God with him then? Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, was God there? Yeah. Did he cease to store up the word of God in his heart? No, it was all still there. But on that day, he said, I know exactly the path in which you want me to go, but I'm not doing it because I want that more than I want you. He pursues it, sleeps with her, She's pregnant, then a series of deceitful acts to try to cover it up. He decides to bring Uriah, her husband, home from war because he likes him so much. Just a little R&R for my favorite warrior. And maybe he'll sleep with his wife and cover up the pregnancy. But Uriah made a pledge, made a vow to the king of all people that I will not have any comforts of home until the battle is won. And so David gets him drunk and sends him back home again. But it says he didn't trust himself because he knew he, he knew he was drunk and he slept on the porch. So David writes the orders that he carries back to the front line. Uriah has to go to the front line and essentially murders him with another man's army. And then says, as an act of goodwill, I will take this man's wife as my own because he meant so much to me. Wow. And he's content to live two lives. Are you and I content to live two lives? Are, is that two lives? 
So God busts him using a third party. A man named Nathan. God fills Nathan in. He's a prophet. He busts him through a story. So Nathan comes in and says, King, we've got a problem in the kingdom. I need you to rule on this situation. In our kingdom, we have a rich man that lives next to a poor man, and the rich man has a thousand sheep, and the poor man has one, and he really loves it. It actually eats at his table and drinks from his cup. A little weird, I know, but he loves it. Rich man had a party, went to the next door, killed that man's sheep, and ate it. He served it to his friends because he didn't want to kill one of his own. What should we do? Kill him, but before we kill him, bring him here, before we kill him, he's going to repay fourfold. I want to know where he is. He's like, don't worry, king. We found him. As a matter of fact, he's in the palace. As a matter of fact, he's in this room because it's you. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he writes Psalm 51. Actually, put it in your bulletin. This is what he writes. If you read the intro to Psalm 51, it'll say, from the hand of David, when Nathan came to see me. That's what he wrote right after it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. For I know my transgressions, they are ever before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. This is, my, this is probably my favorite line. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you know how many times I've said that? Do you know why I say that a lot? Because I have to start over a lot. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, the joy of whose salvation? Your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. He actually goes on to say this. This is the part I like because we do this. He said, what I want to do right now is to sacrifice to you a thousand bulls. And do you know why? Because in our mind we think, I can run off and do this thing, and I feel bad about it, but if I just circle back around and I make some kind of an offering or a sacrifice, then what I did over here will take care of this over here. No, it won't. As a matter of fact, this is what Samuel said to Saul. Saul, God desires obedience, not sacrifice. You can't run around and do whatever you want all week and then just bring an extra big offering to church. You guys know that, right? You can't go do whatever you want and then try to make up for that by being good to somebody else as if God's like, well, that's good now. You did it. I don't want your sacrifice. He actually said, that sacrifice that you bring me, it's a stench to my nose. I don't even want it. I don't want your sacrifice. What I want is your obedience. Just listen to me. And David says, I know that the only offering I can make to you is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the only thing that will please you. So we'll leave it there for a little bit. Here's my point. The same guy that wrote Psalm 119. Have you read Psalm 119? That's an amazing day. 
God, I love you, and I love your word, and I love this, and I love that. It couldn't be higher. The same guy that wrote Psalm 119 also wrote Psalm 51. And so will we. You and I will have Psalm 119 days, but we'll also have some 1 Samuel 11 days. And the only way to get back here is to repent. We got to turn around and go back and go right. Next guy, Peter. I think Peter's most famous for all his mess ups. New Testament, one of the initial followers of Christ, goes from fisherman to inner circle with God in the flesh. So let's give him a break. That's a big jump. He's hot or cold, Peter is. He's like really good or really bad. But he had some good days. He walked on water. I mean, he's the only one other than Jesus to do that. I mean, he did get out of the boat for a bit. He was invited to the top of a mountain to look into heaven and have a chat with Moses. That's a good day. Jesus said to him, on this rock I will build my church. Didn't say that to anybody else. It's got some good stuff. There's the bad too. Jesus also called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He would always speak when he shouldn't. Like he ruined the mountain trip. <laughs> if you read a little further, like he say it was good and then he talked. I'm like, oh, stop talking. Or he wouldn't speak when he should have. He got turned on his heels by a teenage girl, and all she said was, don't you know Jesus? Ah, I, I don't know him. It actually says, a servant girl asked him around the fire. But the Holy Spirit comes on him. It's Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, you guys go wait in the upper room. They weren't exactly waiting. They were more hiding than waiting. So Jesus was gracious, and they were afraid. They were hiding and he said, wait until you get power because I'm the, my presence, my, the spirit of me is coming from above and then that's going to empower you. So wait. And it said, and there was, so they're waiting. And it says, there was the sound like a mighty rushing wind from heaven. And then the presence of God came and it said, they were filled up with all that God is. God filled them with every ounce of everything that he loves and everything he hates was in them because they had the person of God, the spirit of God with them. And it changes. Peter goes out. They all changed. Number one, they were brave. But he goes out from there. He, he preaches. The, the first two sermons, so Acts 2, Acts 3, the first two sermons, 8,000 men believe and receive. Just preaches the gospel. If you include their, their families, they estimate probably 20,000. So you have two sermons and 20,000 new believers. And on his way to and from those speaking engagements, he would heal people. Do you know the craziness that exists around the Pope? You know, like people just clamoring to be near him and around him and all that madness. That's Peter. 
they would figure out which way he was going to walk to his next preaching engagement, and they would line up their sick or whomever along the road just so that maybe his shadow would cross them and just his shadow would heal them. It gets no higher than Peter in terms of man of God. But he just goes off. He drifts. And here's what, here's what happened. Here was the drift. You had people that were believing and receiving. You had rich Jews and crazy Gentiles. The Jews are like him. They're his people. They're, that's his crew except for they're rich. He wasn't rich, but he liked them. Now, they, they were glad to receive Jesus. They thought Jesus was great, but they hung on to some of the traditions of their fathers like eating kosher foods. So to them, it was like Jesus plus kosher food saves. So when Peter was with them, that's what he did. He acted like them. He stayed with them. But as soon as they went away, then he would gravitate towards the crazy Gentile who didn't know anything about that. He didn't say this, but he acted like it. Paul said it. I became like all people so I could reach all people. I became like different people so I could reach them. So then he just became like the Gentile. Then he would forget all that kosher food stuff and he'd just do whatever. He would kind of act like a crazy Gentile. Until who came back to town? The rich Jews. And then when they came back to town, he would go back over here. Probably, maybe they were supporting his ministry. I don't know. But then he would go over there and then he would hang out with them and he would treat them like, a, like second class citizens. And everyone was confused. They're like, because he's the top guy. And the question was, well, what is it? What's the gospel, Peter? Is it food included in that or not? And so, God brings about a third party, an outside person who cares more about what God thinks than man thinks, and corrects him. It's like the New Testament version of Nathan. I mean, different sin, but the same idea. His name's Paul, and this is what Paul says. This is Galatians chapter 2. They ran into each other in Antioch, which was Paul's ministry center, and Paul had a message for Peter, so Cephas hears Peter. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, they being the rich Jews, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, then how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The Pope needed correction. Isn't that an odd way to think about it? But he did. And if you read the writings of Peter later on, if you read 1 Peter, that's why I put it in your bulletin. The writings of Peter later on are the writings of a man who's been humbled. He talks about the gospel. He talks about the call to be holy. He talks about submission to authorities. 
Peter didn't submit to an authority. Like, he chopped people's ears off. I mean, he was, like, he was volatile. But he laid it down. He had drifted, and if on the drift, we're never going to be everything that, he was wrong. And even the Pope, if he was going to be all that God asked him to be and needed him to be and wanted him to be and called him to be, he was going to have to repent and turn around. So, what can we learn? What does God reveal about repentance from these two stories? Now, this is not the full counsel of God on repentance by any stretch. I don't think a single message is ever the full counsel of God on a subject. So this is not all, but this is some. So what has God revealed about repentance that we can learn from? One, it's necessary. I mean, I think that's just at face value. If it's necessary for them, it's going to be necessary for, it's a necessary part of the life of any and all believers. It's going to be part of it. You're a good group of people. I like you. You choose to put yourself in the way of God's word weekly. I mean, maybe you choose to put yourself in the way of God's word daily, but you certainly do it weekly. Some of you have the gospel, or I would say the gospel has you. You've heard it. You can't believe it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that I might become right. And it's not something I do, it's something I receive. And it, it has you. You have the Spirit of God that dwells with you and on you. And it's mysterious, but you certainly would recognize that there are decisions you make that are peaceful, and there are decisions that you make that aren't peaceful, and there's some unrest inside of you. That's God. You would know that, you know what it is to have the Word of God or something you read from the Word pop up in your mind. That's what the Spirit does. He calls to remembrance the Word of God so to guide you. It says that's the way God would speak to you. You have those things. But you have your days, you have your ways, you have your seasons. My question to you today is, where do you go off? Where and when do you walk away from everything you know God wants? Because you do, I do. Where and when? Husbands, you know, you have a, even if you've not read it, you have a vague idea. You know what God has laid out in terms of how you should love your wife. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the, the women answered. <laughs> Perfect. The women know it. The men are like, well, your boat. No, the church. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It keeps no record of wrongs. You know it. I know it. I don't, not today. Not today. Today I'm keeping record of that wrong. 
and I'm going to hold it right in front of you until you get that you were wrong, and then maybe, right? Wives, you know what it is. He, God lit it up for you. This is what it is to be a wife, and you don't like some of it. You don't even like the way it reads off the page, and so you're out. I'm not doing that. Honor your father and mother. Now, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Honor your father and mother. Nah, not today. Who has the gospel and keeps it under a bucket? Let your light shine. Now, not here. Not doing that. What don't you want us to know about you? What would you not want us to see about you in, during the week? Would it be okay if we watched you do business? Would it be okay if we watched you parent all week? Would it be okay if we had like a front row seat to your life and we got to watch you interact all week long, make decisions, pay bills, surf the web? Would that be okay? Or not? You got it in your mind? Do you know where and when? It's on that, on that drift right there. We're never going to be all that God has asked us to be, called us to be, and so it's going to require repentance. You got to turn around. Two, sometimes God, we can learn this, sometimes God uses an outside party to correct us because we're not going to bust ourselves. In both cases, that's what happened. Could God have brought about repentance in those men by himself without, I think, yes, I think he could have, but he didn't. And it's written that way so we would know that God is going to use outside people sometimes. It's written that way so we would know that people are sometimes part of the repentance process, that God will use others. Does David repent without Nathan? I don't think so. Will you repent without a Nathan? Probably not. I think you need a Nathan. Am I saying you a lot? Sorry. I've got one. Do you have anyone in your life who loves God more than he loves what people think, and he likes you or loves you enough to tell you, he or she, whatever. Do you have anybody like that? It's important. Do you know that most of the letters written to the churches in the New Testament, so anything that sounds like a city, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, all that kind of stuff, those are all cities. In those letters, do you know there's always a portion in the letter that says, 
there's tremendous value in Christian community because here's what Christian community can do and look like. And a lot of it's encouraging, but some of it's correcting. Like you need people in your life. There's a part in Ephesians that says, let the thief no longer steal. Let the thief no longer steal. But that's written to the, thie- it's written to the people around the thief as much as it's written to the thief. It says, do not participate or let go unfruitful acts, but expose them. You got you to have some folks around you. There's going to be some things that you can't see or won't see. And those people can help. Repentance probably won't happen without. And if repentance doesn't happen, then how can we, how can we stay on this path of continued Christ-likeness without it? We can't. So it's needed. I have some guys in my life that can correct in that way. Now, they've earned the right to be heard in my life. It's not just anyone, but, but they have. And I've, recently, I asked one of them this question. If you don't write anything else down, you should write this down. What do you see in me that is sinful that I can't see or won't see or both. And if they answer quick, you're in trouble. And he answered quick. He said, you identify someone else's weakness and then you let that color the whole person. That's how you see them. And I'm not saying that you're wrong about your assessment. The weakness is there. Some people don't work hard. Some people are lazy. Some people don't pull their weight. Some people, congratulations, you're right. But that's not all that they are. And they are different from you, and that is good. But you won't see it. You treat them like this, and that is sin, and you need to stop. Nathans aren't a blast, but they're necessary. I had another guy tell me, and I didn't even ask him. He said, I see you do this, and I see you do this, and I see you do this, and this is very good, but it lacks this. And if you don't do this over here and put them all together, this isn't effective. You should stop doing that. And I didn't even ask. He just told me. Those aren't fun either. I don't even think he knew he did it. Maybe he did. Do you have that? Do you have anybody that you can ask that question? There's There's a guy in here who's listened to not a year's worth of sermons yet. He's listened to less than 52 sermons. He likes them. But they don't change him. Do you know what's made a difference in his life in less than 52 weeks? The group of dudes that he meets with before the sermon even starts. That's what makes a difference for him. So... 
You need a Nathan. Three, I think that real repentance is never going to happen unless we feel about our sin the way David felt about his. If you read that, he said, I mean, I put it in your bulletin for a reason, and I want you to have it, and I want you to read it, because if you don't feel about your sin like that, you're not walking away from it. And it's a tall order. It is. He's like, I hate it, and I am sorry. And there's this piece in there that says, I have sinned against you. That seems foreign to me. But unless we get down that deep, listen, let's not pretend you're not changing, and neither am I. There has to be something. There's a definition about repentance. It's like this inner crush that produces an external difference. But if the inner crush isn't there, it's not happening. You know it, and I know it. I read, I want you to think about your sin and read that and see how broke in Psalm 51 David is. And does it resemble how you feel at all? And if it seems foreign to you, there's some disconnect. I really don't know how we're going to get there. The, the piece in there that I don't get is against you, God, I have sinned. He's brokenhearted that he's hurt God. Do you care? Do I care that it's against God, not the person? I think the only way we could ever be sorry to God is if we think about him. We can't be sorry to God initially on sin unless we're thinking about him, about how good he's been to us. I had this conversation with my daughter just the other day. I'm like, what have you been able to accomplish this year? It was a great conversation. She said this and this and this and this. She can't wipe the smile off her face. I'm like, that is awesome. Who's responsible for that? Do you know you didn't do any of that? Not one bit of that without God enabling you to do all of it. Have you even acknowledged him just a little bit? No. I don't think you ever get to Psalm 51 sorry if you're not recalling or thinking about the goodness of God in your life. What has he done? I mean, David knows he's nobody. David knows that he got plucked out. David knows that the Spirit of God came on him and did everything. David knows. He even said, I'm not great, you are. He knows all that, and yet it's that recalling of how good God has been, and then he's trampled on it. And I think it's the trampling, when you think about how good God has been, and you realize you've just trampled all over it, and every day you just trample it all over again, and is God, what does God say? My faith, my mercies are new every morning. And every morning we stand ready to trample on it. How crazy is that? And unless you give it any thought, how can you even be sorry about it to him? I was thinking, I just was reading Psalm 51 this morning. The end of the sermon wasn't written yet. I know, Saturday or Sunday morning, it should be written. I'm like, how are we going to get there? And this thought occurred to me. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And it turns out that's a verse Do you know that's a verse? 
do you? So I looked it up. It says, do you show contempt for the riches of his mercy? You just trample on it every day. Don't you know it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? I do now. If you're ever going to get to Psalm 51, sorry. If I'm ever going to get there, I must hold in my mind how good God has been to me. Then we have a shot. And the last one, super quick, is... I think it's fruit. I think repentance is fruit. You know that verse that says, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And God will take all the bad trees that don't have any fruit and throw them away and burn them. You know, that, that's a lovely verse, isn't it? I think that repentance is, that, is some of that good fruit of the good tree. I think it's proof of salvation. If, you, if you're never sorry ever and it never hits you, then how can you say that you were ever really his? I think a healthy, even daily repentance is proof that you are his. I think that's fruit. Now, without a doubt, there's an attitude in the church that would say, well, this person who is habitually repenting if they were really fruitful, they wouldn't have to do that. I disagree. That's not what I read in the Word. I read about all the saints in the Word. You know what I see about all the saints in the Word? A continued, healthy, turning away, repenting. I think it's fruit. I think it's fruit from a good tree. And without it, though, without that, I don't think we're ever going to get back to where we knew God called us to be without some healthy, daily, heartfelt, Psalm 51, broken heart, repentance. So, repent. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for stories of the saints and thanks for your goodness to them and teach us what we need to know about repentance from them. I ask it in Jesus' name and everybody said.